Welcome to the Bible Study Podcast for Grace Lutheran Church. This is the baptism series for readings in Lent in 2017. Our scripture for today is the story from John chapter 11, often called the Raising of Lazarus. Now, if you've been following along with this podcast, you know that we began with the the first session talking about Nicodemus in chapter 3, the woman at the well, chapter 4, and then the second session was the man born blind in chapter 9. So now we are in chapter 11. We're progressing right along in this gospel narrative. And when we get to chapter 13, we're already at the scene that in our tradition we read on Monday, Thursday, uh, where Jesus gets down from the table and washes the disciples' feet. And that's the beginning of kind of the end in terms of a, a foreshadowing of of all that is to come with the crucifixion. Um, so this story, in many ways, is that we're going to look at today, is a pivotal point um, in the narrative that's going to be kind of the ultimate foreshadowing of what will happen to Jesus in his arrest, betrayal, and death. Um, so as we're listening to the story, which we're going to read in its entirety because it is a nice um, layout of a story, and we want to hear the whole thing, and then we'll look at a few particulars. So as you are listening to the whole story, think about the ways that it connects to what you know about Jesus' death, and that story coming up in later chapters. Let me read to you from the Gospel of John chapter 11. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with perfume and wiped his feet with her hair. Her brother Lazarus was ill, so the sisters sent a message to Jesus, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death, rather it is for God's glory, so that the Son of Man may be glorified through it. Accordingly, though Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, after having heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now trying to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours of daylight? Those who walk during the day do not stumble because they see the light of this world, but those who walk at night stumble because the light is not in them. After saying this, he told them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will be all right. Jesus, however, had been speaking about his death, but they thought that he was referring merely to sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. For your sake I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Thomas, who was called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. When Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, some two miles away, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them about their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, while Mary stayed at home. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask of him. 
Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one coming into the world. When she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary and told her privately, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come to the village, but was still at the place where Martha had met him. The Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary get up quickly and go out. They followed her because they thought that she was going to the tomb to weep there. When Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she knelt at his feet and said to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was greatly disturbed in spirit and deeply moved. He said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus began to weep. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, again greatly disturbed, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and the stone was lying against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, already there is a stench, because he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus looked upward and said, Father, I thank you for having heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I have said this for the sake of the crowd standing here, so that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet bound with strips of cloth and his face wrapped in a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what Jesus did, believed in him. And that's the end of our reading. Now, I, I want to start at the end because if you're reading along in like an NRSV or an RSV uh, Bible or probably a few other translations, verse 45, which is where we end, that's the beginning of a new paragraph. Um, but it, we only get one verse of that in our appointed reading. And so it kind of closes off the story, but it's a little bit of an introduction into a new thought. And I want to just read the following few verses and talk about how that's important. So many of the Jews saw what Jesus did, believed in him, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what he had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the council and said, what are we going to do? This man is performing many signs. And then they have a whole discussion. Caiaphas, who's the high priest, says, well, it's better for one man to die for the people than for all of them to be destroyed. And right there we get the beginning of the plot to kill Jesus. So literally this story of the raising of Lazarus becomes kind of the last straw uh, for those in power that want to uh, remove the ruckus that Jesus is causing and stirring up the people. And why that is, I believe, is because this story as you kind of listen to the dialogue, and we talked last time about a lot of these stories are, are really 
interesting to think about as plays up on stage and who's standing with whom and what characters are talking. Um, as the story goes on, it's a very public scene. There's lots of people around. And then Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. So in our blind man story, it's just Jesus and the blind man when the healing happens. And then everybody's left to kind of talk about whether or not it even happened. And if he did it, was he even there? We didn't see him. Uh, the woman at the well conversation, um, they're having a very private exchange and only the disciples come upon them talking but don't hear what they're saying. Here with the raising of Lazarus, we get a very powerful story, um, maybe the most powerful act that Jesus has done the whole gospel so far, and it's very public when it happens. So this becomes kind of the last straw um, and they begin to plot for his death. Um, also could be why it's poised in the narrative in this place that is foreshadowing his death um, just as Lazarus has died and was in a tomb with a stone. I mean, think of all the elements that you probably know from the beloved uh, crucifixion and also Easter morning story. We have a lot of those elements here with Lazarus, and that's a foreshadowing of Jesus' own death. Um, it's interesting if you go back to now the beginning of the story, we have a reference to Jesus uh, saying, you know, this illness does not lead to death, rather it's for God's glory. And it kind of recalls what Jesus said about the blind man, right? This, this man is not blind because his parents sinned or he sinned. It's going to reveal God's glory. So we have the same uh, beginning to Lazarus, right? It's not just an illness um, that we don't understand. It's going to be an illness that God uses for God's purpose. Um, and it's ironic, as we know, John loves irony. It's ironic that Jesus says this illness does not lead to death. Well, right. It doesn't lead to Lazarus' death because he gets raised from the dead. But it leads to Jesus' death. This sign, this miracle, this resurrection that he um, lifts up Lazarus out of the tomb and he's been dead four days and then he has life, this sign leads to Jesus' own death, as we saw with the plot to kill him. So there's a little slice of irony there. Also, we talked about uh, the story of the woman at the well, how the writer of John's gospel loves words with double meanings. And we get that again here in verse 11. Jesus is talking to the disciples. Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, right? Often can mean sleep. But often in the scripture refers to death. Um, and then he says, I'm going there to awaken him. Same kind of idea. What does that mean? Awaken him. Wake him up. Rise him up from the dead. And the disciples in verse 12, you get the confusion sentence. Well, if he's fallen asleep, he'll be all right. Kind of like the woman at the well saying, well, where's your bucket if you're going to get this running water? And then unlike in any of the other scenes of double meaning and confusion, here Jesus speaks plainly after the confusion. Plain as plain. In verse 13, you get what's going on in his mind, which we've never had before. And then in verse 14, the words even say, Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. There's no, no sense of confusion. And then kind of from there, we get the sense in the narration that, yeah, we don't want any confusion. We want people to know, both the disciples, the Jews, anybody reading this story and hearing it, he was dead. Let's be clear about that. He was dead. And then it goes on to talk about, in verse 17, he had been in the tomb four days. 
Why four days? That seems like an excessively long time. And you wonder why you hear in the earlier in the story, Jesus finds out Lazarus is ill and stays two days longer, right? So why, why are we extending the time frame to four days? Well, in the time of the writing of John's gospel in the, the Jewish community at the time, the legal requirement for death was four days. Um, a popular belief was that the soul hovered around the body for three days after death, hoping to re-enter it. But after the third day, the soul leaves the body for good. So it, here we have a very important point about Lazarus being really dead, like good and dead, as we would say, cold and dead or something, warm and dead, whatever the expression is. I think it's warm and dead. Um, as as we say now, I'm thinking of, you know, some episodes of NCIS where Ducky would say, oh, they're not dead till they're warm and dead. So this same idea of we want to just drive home the point that he was really dead, all requirements, whatever your qualifications are for someone to be really wholly dead. This is Lazarus. And then we think about the foreshadowing of Jesus' own story. And why is it that we can't count up really to three days um, between his death and resurrection in some of these gospels, but we always get this phrase, right, that he was raised after the third day, right? After the third day, Jesus was raised from the dead. And so we, we have the same um, use of the legal requirement for death and thus driving home the point of how miraculous, wonderful, powerful, unbelievable, indescribable a resurrection really is when someone is at the legal requirement of death. Um, Thomas has this great line right um, in the same conversation about whether or not Lazarus is truly, really dead, where Jesus says, let's go. Okay, he's really dead. I'm just going to tell it to you plainly. We don't want any confusion about this. Let's go see Lazarus. And Thomas says, yeah, let us go, that we may die with him. And you think, what what a strange line, right? Like, what disciple says, yes, let's go, that we may also die. And so maybe it harkens back to the, rap, the uh, disciples pointing out to Jesus that, hey, they were just trying to stone you, and you're trying to go back to that same place. I mean, do you think that's a good idea? And so maybe Thomas is like, yeah, let's go, because you know we're going to get in trouble. Or is it a foreshadowing of what happens when we follow Christ? Um, as it happened to the disciples themselves in their own um, following of Christ after his death and resurrection and ascension, it led to their own deaths. Um, Bonhoeffer, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a German Lutheran theologian who lived during the time of World War II in Nazi Germany, was part of the Confessing Church, uh, wrote extensively about discipleship, what does it look like to follow Christ, uh, because there were so many people in his time and era, uh, educated people, religious people, uh, government people, leaders, uh, well-respected people who were uh, abandoning the tenets of the gospel to serve their own self-interest or the self-interest of uh, certain groups in power. And so he wrote extensively about what does it mean to follow Christ? Because he felt like, of course, many had lost their way in that. And you can see in his writings, you know, some wrestling with, with what all that means. And one of the lines that sticks in my head when I hear Thomas saying, let us go that we may die with him and, and thinking ahead to the cross, is that Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, uh, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. 
Um, and certainly that was true for Bonhoeffer as he gave his own life um, trying to bring down Hitler and his regime. Um, but in many and various ways, uh, he died to things long before he gave his whole life. He uh, died to certain comforts when he was arrested and put in prison, when he made choices uh, to follow the gospel when it was not popular and didn't want to be heard by people. Um, he, he lost connection to some of his family, to other friends, other colleagues, um, and he in many ways uh, gave up a lot or, or died to parts of his life uh, for following Christ. Um, and I think today when we think about what does it mean to follow Christ, it means to kind of in some ways walk in the footsteps of Lazarus. Um, it means to uh, be so enmeshed in the gospel and uh, the conversation, I think, of, of Jesus that had had with the woman at the well, um, freeing people from their baggage and all the ways that that takes place, um, helping people who are curious about their faith uh, come to some deeper understanding in all the ways that takes place. Um, the blind man where, you know, we're going about um, seeing people that other people don't want to see, that they trip over every day, lifting them up and bringing them into community with us. Um, all those things are risky. There's an inherent risk in living the gospel, in fighting for justice, um, in living like a resurrection happened to you. Um, when the world around you or even just other people around you, especially those in power, maybe are not following those same values and uh, representing the same tenets of the gospel. There is a risk then when you do that. And of course, Bonhoeffer knew that risk firsthand. And that in, in many ways is what it means to be a disciple of Christ, that we are invited to die to ourselves. Um, I think about people who get put money in the offering plate at church. That's a choice every week that they make uh, to not buy something else for themselves, um, and they give it to the work of the church. And maybe you're a person who gives to a church community, and maybe you're a person who gives to some other uh, nonprofit that helps folks um, find a place in community and fights for justice for them. And that's the same idea about how we, we gave up something. You know, that's a, a small sacrifice, a death, if you will, um, to make that choice every week. And then there's many in various ways as we live out our life that we die to ourselves and live to Christ and the community um, that is greater than we are. So that is discipleship, you know, according to Bonhoeffer. And I think there's a lot here in this story that puts us in the shoes of Lazarus. Um, something to think about as we move ahead. I love the uh, conversation that Martha has with Jesus uh, in verse 24, 25. And then Jesus kind of, again, reveals a, a huge identity piece of himself. We got that with the woman at the well. We got that with the blind man. You know, we got some some revelation he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. And then she confesses, yeah, I believe that. Um, I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one coming into the world. A huge confession on the part of Martha. And in the other three Gospels, uh, that confession resides with Peter, uh, one of the key disciples. Here in John's Gospel, it's 
not only on the lips of a woman, but also on the lips of someone who, at least as the writer portrays it, was not a disciple, uh, per se, of Jesus. Uh, that could make for some interesting conversation. But she has this confession. I want to kind of move on and say that then when Jesus wants to roll away the stone, do you note what Martha says? Much like Peter, right, in the, in the other Gospels, he has really good moments. Good job, Peter. And then he kind of takes three steps backwards. So Martha has this great elaborate confession. Jesus wants to roll away the stone later in the story. And Martha's like, well, it's going to smell bad because he's been in there four days. I mean, do you really think this is necessary? And then Jesus says, did I not tell you that I was a resurrection and the life? Did I not tell you that this was going to turn out differently than you assume? Um, and so it's a little chastising going on there, much like we have with Peter. So Martha falls in that role of kind of a key disciple, at least in this story. Um, it's it's very interesting, uh, the gender reversal, uh, right, between the th other three Gospels and John's, at least in, in this role and, and in some other ways. Um, the stench, though, really falls into the category of some other stuff we were talking about in the blind man story where we have people's preconceived ideas and assumptions and expectations about how God works in the world and then what Jesus is going to do to blow their mind. And so even after all that beautiful conversation about the resurrection of life and, oh, you're here, Jesus, we feel so much better, Jesus, you know, it's like, really, we're going to move away the stone. You, really, really, there's something going to happen. And then Jesus says, like, get the stone out of the way because I'm about to blow your mind. And that's what happens, you know, in every story um, in the gospel, really. And then it ultimately happens, speaking of foreshadowing, in the crucifixion story, right? All the people have given up hope by the end of the crucifixion when Jesus dies. And then it's like, I'm going to blow your mind because check me out. I'm going to be raised from the dead. So you get that in, you know, the end of the gospel, the scene with the garden where the women come to the tomb and it blows their mind, right? That Jesus would be the gardener standing there and that they would recognize him and he would call them by their name. Uh, so that's just a, a theme throughout the whole gospel, a wonderful theme. Um, it's interesting at the end of the story that we have a, a positive uh, portrayal of the Jews. Now, when we read the blind man story, you started to really get a sense of how the writer is uh, pinning down this community, um, the people who worship in the synagogue alongside the Jesus followers, um, you know, not always very nice to them, hostile. Uh, of course, they had their reasons as you read through the story, but you, you develop that sense of, these these folks don't get along with us. They don't respect us. But here we have a story where the Jews are painted um, as a community alongside the Jesus followers in a more positive light. You know, many people saw this public sign. They were there to weep with Mary and Martha. They were there to care for them. Um, and they believed in Jesus and they had a positive response to him. And that's an important part of the story because it kind of shows how it was a very divisive time in the community. There were those that were, you know, the early adapters, right? They were like, yes, let's follow Jesus. And then there were kind of the people in the middle who were like, well, until I see something really impressive, I don't know if I'm on board. Oh, you raised Lazarus from the dead? Okay, awesome. You know, let's follow Jesus. And then you've got some people who are hanging back, who are never probably going to adapt to the change, or at least it takes 
till the end of the death and resurrection narrative before people come around in that group uh, to believe in Jesus. And then, of course, we have those today that still don't believe in Jesus, probably from that same group. So just like any major change or way God works in the world throughout the whole biblical story, um, thinking back to the Israelites and how many times Moses calls upon God to say, I can't believe these people, these people still don't get it. I got, you know, this group up here, I got Aaron and the other priests and, you know, they're kind of with it. And then I got these other people back here and you would think after we left Egypt and crossed through that whole water situation that they would be all on board, but no, that wasn't enough for them. You know, it's kind of a an overarching theme throughout the whole Bible. And so I think in some ways, you know, we, we all fall into one of those categories, uh, whether we're the people that jump right on board behind whatever Jesus, crazy blow your mind thing Jesus is doing today. Um, there are people who are like, well, if I see a big sign, if I see, you know, a really impressive miracle, if I'm moved by the spirit in a way I can't deny, then I'm going to follow. And then we have those folks who are yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's just that this is the way it's always been. I don't know that I can accept that this is a new thing, the way God is working. I'm going to have trouble with that. And it might take, you know, a ginormous revelation uh, to bring them to that point. That that's maybe the human dynamic throughout the whole story, our whole relationship with God. And probably we're not in one category or the other um, as a fixed uh, way in our life, but we probably fall in each category depending on the topic, uh, the time in our life, and so forth. Um, it's okay to be fluid with that. Um, I think it's an interesting point, though. Now, for our baptism connection to this story, of course, we've talked about death and life, but we haven't talked about um, Lazarus himself. When Lazarus comes out of the tomb, it's wild to me, it's, it's at least attention-grabbing, that he still has his hands and feet bound with strips of cloth and his face wrapped in a cloth. You know, we were talking about this in our Bible study session and someone pointed out, man, that would be difficult to walk, right? You'd be like hobbling along with your hands and feet bound and your face all bound. You wouldn't even be able to talk. So here he is raised from the dead. He's still wrapped up in all the signs of death. Now, why is that? Uh, I think in terms of the foreshadowing, this is where the stories diverge. When Lazarus comes out of the tomb, he still wears the signs of death because he will one day die again. Uh, when Jesus comes out of the tomb, he wears no signs of death because in him, death has lost its sting and he will die no more. Um, and that's a divergence in the story. Now, I want to point out the very last part of verse 44 comes out with all that wrapping. And then Jesus says to them, to the community. Now, the them is Mary and Martha. It's the disciples. It's the Jews who are hanging around. Some of them on the fence. Some of them following Jesus. It's a whole community of folks. But they were all there because they all knew Lazarus. They were part of his community, right? They were somehow attached to him. Jesus says to them, unbind him and let them go. So it is the community's job from this story we get. It is the community's job to unbind the dead person and really bring them into fullness of new life. And I think about the ways that baptism is kind of the mark of that. You know, we go down in the water, we say, with Christ in his death. We are buried with Christ by baptism um, into his death, as we get from Paul's letter to the Romans. And then we come up with him out of the water, uh, given uh, the wonderful gift of new life. 
as well as the gift of eternal life when we die at the end of our lives. Um, and so, of course, we got the death and resurrection, but then how is baptism, which is done in a community where you're surrounded by a community that is professing to help you along your faith journey and professing the faith with you, saying the creed with you or your parents um, to show support, how are we living out then our baptism as a community we are saying to this child or this adult that's being baptized, we will be here um, to continue to unbind your grave clothes, to continue to release you from any signs of death and things that are not life-giving, that you may have the life that Christ intended for you, life abundant, eternal life uh, lived out here and now and in the life to come. That that's the role of the community in baptism, and that's the role the community plays in the raising of Lazarus. Um, the resurrection part of the story is not complete until Lazarus is unbound, and he can't unbind himself. Boy, isn't that a great path to go down for Lutheran theology. You can't unbind yourself. Jesus' voice calls him back to life. And then he is powerless to unbind himself. It takes others, it takes the community of faith around him to unbind him. So your challenge this week, um, this is Holy Week in our tradition and a great time for this Lazarus story, as we will see it lived out through Christ's own death and resurrection story, um, the greatest story ever told, uh, right, that still lives on in our telling and still lives on as we live out our baptism. Your challenge for this week is to look for places and people that are bound by signs of death, uh, illness, bound by anxiety, bound by addiction, depression, uh, bound by isolation or loneliness. Um, maybe they're bound by systems of oppression. Um, how can you and your community of faith unbind them and set them free let them go that they may live the life that Christ intended for them. Thanks for listening. To find out more about our church and what we're up to, visit us on the web at gracecamphill.org.